perhaps have taken it back a step. The yuan is the only major currency that is still overvalued. The yen is very far from being overvalued. The CD rules and the banking union rules um, suggest that we'll have to have bail-ins for banks that are failing. That means that investors will take losses. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everybody. Tom Keen and Michael McKee. Tom at the IMF meetings in Washington. I'm here in our New York studios, and we are looking at uh, kind of an off day in markets. We are waiting for Christine Lagarde, who will be speaking with Tom a little later in the program. Maybe she can turn things around, but right now S&P futures off by three. Dow futures by 24. The stock 600 is a point lower in Europe. Interestingly, uh, Fed fears have still got the U.S. yield curve elevated. We're at 84 basis points on the two-year uh, to uh, 1.7 on the 10-year. So we'll keep an eye on that. Oil prices, uh, the hurricane, and we should mention this, is, uh, is it, it, the forecast has gotten worse for Florida. It definitely looks like it's going to come in with uh, Category 4 strength along the whole coast, which is not a good thing. Uh, West Texas at yeah. 49.83 unchanged. Brent crude 51.95 is up on the day by about a tenth. Neither of those really now, being affected by Sterling. the storms. And, of course, uh, Tom has been pointing out uh, the breakdown in the British currency cable going for 126.58, down three-quarters of a percentage point. Wow. Still concerns about uh, what the potential for a hard Brexit might mean. Uh, we are joined now by one of our favorite people because uh, we've been talking all morning about the impact of the banking system in Europe on uh, the rest of the world. Anad Admadi, finance professor from uh, Stanford University and the author of The Banker's New Clothes, which explains everything you need to know about banking and debt and capital and all things like that. So if you're confused by what Tom and I are talking about, pick up that book. We, we urge you. Um, and the, the timing is perfect because yet again today, more revelations about Deutsche Bank, and this time uh, some uh, c- cooking the books on some deals with uh, Banco Monte de Pasqui. Um, what, what kind of is fascinating to me is that we went through the financial crisis. We put in all kinds of regulations. Now, granted, these are European banks, but they can see what's happening in the United States. We've raised capital levels, and they're still doing this stuff. Well, we raise capital levels, but with these accounting tricks, the capital levels become meaningless. So that's a problem right there, and that connects to all kinds of other fraud issues, consumer issues we had with Wells Fargo and all of that. So <clears throat> big problems. Not, I look still. At, I, I, oh, good morning. Hi. I look at Deutsche Bank now, and I don't think it's in a vacuum. How do you perceive... The decades of management of Deutsche Bank and the business strategy and the mergers that they've been through, including Alex Brown of Baltimore and the rest, how do you fold the history of Deutsche Bank into the immediate prospect of contagion? Well, Deutsche Bank has made itself more and more and more systemic in chasing returns, in becoming a champion of, of investment banking. In the book, we take... Ackerman, one of the previous CEOs, for saying he thinks 25% ROE is sort of appropriate for 25%. When I show this to a finance mentor of mine, he's like, huh? They don't listen to what these CEOs say. Is that what he really said? That's unconscionable. 
how do you get 25%? You've got to take enormous amount of risk, obviously, and be good at it. So the history of Deutsche Bank is, is one of basically taking a lot of risk, expansion, you know, the ultimate of becoming no. too big to fail. Systemic. From New York and Washington this morning, Bloomberg Surveillance folks, Michael McKee in New York. I'm Tom Keen in Washington. Later on, our conversation with Christine Lagarde. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. Look ahead, gain insight, imagine more. The professionals at Cone Resnick can help your business break through. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. Michael? We did... Uh see a lot of additional regulation put in place after the financial crisis, and uh, banks are better capitalized now. Maybe not as much as you would like, but certainly better capitalized than uh, they were. And yet, when you look at share prices, and I'm not just talking Deutsche Bank or Wells Fargo, which have had been in the news, but for all banks, United States and Europe, their, their shares uh, are lower. They've never really recovered, and it seems like investors still consider them extremely risky. Well, they are risky. Didn't Larry Summer recently say that as well? They're very risky, and the thing is that they're very highly leveraged still in real measures, not in these capital measures. Uh, they added a lot of regulations, but not cleverly so. So their regulations are very complex, more complex than they need to be, and, of course, that raises compliance costs and other things like that. So between the fines and, and all the regulatory compliance and, and, be, and of course, because of risk that investors are having a lot of trouble assessing because the disclosures are so poor, you see that in the stock prices. So when you have so much leverage, price fluctuates a lot. So a tiny bit on the downside is a lot on the downside, and the way, uh, this way it works on the upside. This is basic leverage. Everything gets magnified. Well, John Cryan, CEO of Deutsche Bank, suggests that this is deliberate on the part, the volatility is deliberate on the part of investors, hedge funds who are trying to manipulate the price. <laughs> uh, this is radio. People can't see your face, but, <laughs> but that, that, was, that was an interesting face you just made. Didn't Enron, the CEO, also blame short sellers? It's deliberate on his part that his stock is so risky and so poorly. It's a, there's so poor, such poor information about it that investors are scared about what the skeletons that he has in the closet and the risk of, of, of Deutsche Bank. So that's what's the deliberate part. The deliberate part is their conduct, is their the type of business model that they have. That's the part that uh, that, that he should look at instead of blaming right. investors. Anad Amadi, how do you look at negative interest rates? You've always had a different prism, a different filter. How do you look at where we are with chronic negative rates? Well, I try not to talk about things that I don't fully understand. And if most of your guests are saying that they really understand all these monetary policy things, I think, you know, should take it with a grain of salt. But I'll say it's clear that it's harder in some respect to 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 make money. It's certainly harder on on, uh, on many institutions that need returns, like pension funds, endowments, uh, insurance companies. It's very difficult in a, such a long period of time to have uh, these liabilities. So there, I think it introduces a lot of fragilities, and uh, it's problematic when it goes on so long. I understand that, you know, there might be real negative real interest rates. I understand the, the need to stimulate, but it gets to a point where I think, you know, it really is um, the overall impact is beginning to not quite 
do what you wanted to do. Well, is the risk-reward risk calculation tilting now towards too much risk? And are central banks working against themselves by keeping rates so low or using negative rates so that banks can't earn their way out of trouble? Well, I think that some banks, you know, shouldn't earn their way out of trouble, should just be put out to rest. So I think there are a lot of zombie banks in Europe. I think there's excessive uh, excess capacity in this industry and that if it shrinks some, it's okay. The fact that you need to gamble in order to survive all the time is not a healthy industry that way. So I'm not, um, I, you know, the banks die with such such little frequency despite their conduct and despite living so dangerously that something's wrong there. So I'm not I'm not shedding too many tears on, on if if some banks are unwound not in a crisis like like you know in that, these kinds of days if they can't make it. But um, what do our banks do? What do our banks do given sustained tepid GDP? If we believe we're not going to get back to three percent real GDP, does that just demand consolidation nationwide? Well, the issue with banking is the issue of the need for intermediation. What's the business of intermediation? Because the banks are not, you know, producing, you know, real assets. They're just allocating the the savings and all of that. So, you know, there have been questions in, in finance, even finance academics are beginning to wonder just how much, given that we have, you know, certain technological capabilities, but there's still need for, for that human uh, intervention in intermediation, how much of it we need. So, yes, if, if the economy is, is smaller, then maybe the banking sector needs to be smaller as well. But uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't think, I think it should be more natural. My problem continues to be that, that there are so many distortions in this, in this system that it's bloated because it can be, because it wants to be. Well, let's come back with Anand Mahdi from Stanford University and continue our conversation about the banks. Wells Fargo shares right now are off, uh, oh, just a, a few cents in early morning trading. Uh, we're looking at uh, the Banco de Monte de Pasqui off 3%, though, today on these revelations of uh, some book cooking with uh, Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank shares up three-tenths. 12.11 euros right now, 12, uh, 12 euros, uh, 11 cents. S&P futures off by four, Dow futures by 34. The stock 600 is down a point. This is Bloomberg. Tom Keen in Washington for the IMF meetings. Michael McKee here in the studio in New York, along with Anand Hadmati, Stanford finance professor and noted uh, banking analyst, shall we say, <laughs> the author of the uh, book, The Banker's New Clothes, along with Martin Helwig uh, in uh, Germany. And uh, she and, and we are, have been talking about um, the troubles of the banking system lately and how they have impacted um, the rest of the world. And I want to go back to what we were uh, what you and Tom were talking about just before the break when uh, you were mentioning net interest margins and how that is is, uh, hurting their ability to earn. Higher regulatory costs also take a toll. Um, The the markets for investment banking are shrinking. You've got the shadow banking system getting bigger all the time. Uh, Are we seeing a, a sea change, a secular change in banking. Are we going to get the utility model that people have talked about for so long because you just can't make money in the traditional banking sense? I, don't, I think that 
there's a lot of business that is not quite net interest margin when you invest in derivatives and you start to, you how you can still do a lot of you know merchant banking and private equity and hedge funds and when you 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 start buying up all these fintech companies and the shadow banking system is just sort of owned or directly related to the regular banking industry. So it's not like that. There's no bright light there at all, bright line there at all between, you know, this banking and that banking. They're all the same. So I I don't think we're headed to a utility model in the sense that I don't think the banks will voluntarily become utilities. Where the regulations are going, well, you know my view. My view is that the regulation is unfocused. I'd like to remove complicated regulation that doesn't bring as much benefit for the cost on everybody that it takes and bring in straightforward regulation that's going to keep viable banks kind of healthier and get rid of some unhealthy banks that are just kind of trying to stay in. And in my view, I you know, the banks are showing symptoms of kind of the way insolvent or highly distressed companies behave. They just are able to stay that way because they don't have the creditors to push to sort of tell them that they're sick. Mm-hmm. So anyway, regulators, unless they flex muscles and insist that the banking system has got to be healthy and stable, uh, we're going to continue a little long. Anata Mahdi with us of Stanford University. Bloomberg surveillance this morning from Washington and the offices of the International Monetary Fund their annual meetings, and from New York, brought to you by Invesco to the day's headlines. If you're searching for more investment views, Invesco's high-conviction portfolio managers can help. Find the latest at the Invesco blog. Visit Invesco.com slash U.S. to subscribe. Anad Amadi, give us an update on almost the microeconomics of financial repression and the enthusiasm for loan demand. I, I, I think there's a lot of ambiguities within the certitude of the media and the coverage of this. If we're financially repressed, we're going to stay financially impressed. How does that fold back into the animal spirit of I need a loan? Well, when people need loans, if you talk about micro, you know, foundations of all of this, the question is what do they need a loan for? And so you can get people to, you can dangle a loan in front of somebody and they might take it and they can't pay it back. So we've seen a lot of that in the uh, subprime, you know, liar loans and all of that. So, you know, demand for loans is, you know, there's sort of the, the good demand for loans for productive things, for investing in, you know, Good education, small businesses that will do stuff. Uh, if the economy is not, not working, then you don't have the kind of good demand for loans. And then if you have a lot of credit or credit boom, then it doesn't end well usually. So, you know, there is lending and there's lending. There's credit and there's credit. I make a distinction there. If it's very cheap to, bo- to borrow, then maybe people will, but it's still a loan and it still is money that, <clears throat> that somebody gets today and promises to pay later. Uh, we can't let you go without asking you, since you uh, come from Stanford out in the San Francisco Bay Area, about the San Francisco Bay Area's big bank, Wells Fargo. Uh, what happens next with it? Well, what's interesting about Wells Fargo is that among the numerous scandals, this one resonates with people because it's a simple consumer issue, and sort of the magnitude of it is like people are, are wowed. A lot of there were there have been a lot of scandals here. You mentioned you know disclosures of, of Deutsche Bank, and every single day there is something. Credit Suisse now is still dealing with the SEC. No, I'm fine Wells right now. is interesting. I want some of it because 
it got a lot of attention from a lot of stakeholders. For example, the treasurer of my state, California, has gotten pissed off at Wells Fargo and pulled away his business, which a few other state treasurers have uh, done. And so you, you ask yourself, okay, can the state of California do something about Wells Fargo? And I think that there's some feeling in the, my state that they want to do something about it. Like, uh-huh. you know, put in a state law something or well, whatever we'll, else. We'll have to watch for that. And unfortunately, we have to leave it here, but come back again because it just seems like yeah. these bank stories never end. Keep Shanat Amadi employed. Right, that's professor at Stanford University. Thanks for joining us today here on Surveillance. This is Bloomberg.